It's the 21st century. There's something about that that's convicting to me as I look back at first century Christianity. And there are times when we need to look back to the future, as they call it, and maybe learn some things, especially at Missions Month here. At Missions Month in our church, we're reminded of our not only our responsibility to reach our world, but the privilege. It's really a great privilege to be able to live at this time in history with this generation and to be able to try and reach our world at this time. And so it behooves us, I think, to try and learn as much as we can from the first century Christians as we operate now in the 21st century. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, at this time and turn to the book of Acts and the fourth chapter. Acts chapter 4. This is missions month here at Fargo Baptist Church, and there's a passage here that really has so much in it about missions. And missions, we can talk about sending missionaries across the ocean, but missions really begins with us personally, our, our own personal one-on-one witness with other people, the, the sharing of our faith, of what God has done for us. And so that's what this passage is about. It's really first century Christianity that we need to take and bring into the 21st century We're going to read quite a portion here, actually the first 20 verses. So Acts 4, beginning in verse 1, says, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit, many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them, that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, 
Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, I call this first century Christianity, and I want us to learn some things from it today if we could. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless first. Father, please now help us to draw some truth from this passage. And and Lord, may it find lodging in our hearts. And may we make an application so that it would change us to make us more like the Master, as was just sung. Father, we just pray now that as a result, He could be glorified. For we pray and ask these things in His precious name. Amen. I remember growing up as a kid, and the only decade I knew for the first 10 years of my life was the 1960s. And I'll never forget, we watched the Ed Sullivan Show every Sunday night in our house. It was a really big shoe, remember that? And... uh, it was the last Sunday, it was, a, it was the last Sunday of December 1969, and we were watching the Ed Sullivan Show, live from New York. And toward the end, uh, 1970 appeared in the television screen. And I looked at that and I went, wow, 1970, no more 60s. And I, I remember thinking, that's pretty neat, I'm, I'm actually going to see the 1970s. And as I grew up and, you know, turned 11 and 12 and, and such, I began to think about what it's going to be like when, when, when 2000 actually hits. I don't know about you, but, but thinking about that figure, 2000, I, I figured in my mind, I see I'll be 40 years of age when that happens, and boy, that's going to be weird. And that, will the world end before then? You know, and all this stuff goes through your mind as a kid. But we've been in the 2000s now for quite a while. It's the 21st century. There's something about that that's, I guess, convicting to me as I look back at first century Christianity. And, and there are times when we need to look back to the future, as they call it, and maybe learn some things, especially at Missions Month here. At Missions Month in our church, we're reminded of our, not only our responsibility to reach our world, but the privilege. It's really a great privilege to be able to live at this time in history with this generation and to be able to try and reach our world at this time. And so it behooves us, I think, to try and learn as much as we can from the first century Christians as we operate now in the 21st century. By way of background, this whole story actually starts a chapter earlier when Peter and John, they go into the temple to pray, and the praying hour was 3 o'clock. And so they go into Solomon's ports, they're praying, and, and before they really get there, they they see this man, he had been crippled from, from his youth. He's, I think, 40 years of age, if I remember. And he's looking for a handout. And they steadfastly look upon him and they say, we don't have any money. But that which we have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the Bible says his ankle bones receive strength. And, and he, he, he not only walks, he leaps. He's got his arms around each of them. He's creating a scene. Woohoo! He's coming into the temple because the first time in his life now, He's actually walking. Well, it creates quite a stir and a scene, and people gather around, and uh, all of a sudden, the Pharisees catch wind of what's going on there. And so we pick it up in verse number uh, 4, I'm sorry, verse number 1 of chapter 4, with what I call the incarceration. The incarceration. In verse 1 it says, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, that would really get the Sadducees ticked off because they didn't even believe in the resurrection of the dead. 
How worthless can you be to be in the ministry and not believe in a hereafter? You know, there are a few things that we would call worthless. Mosquitoes come close. But, but the Sadducees have to be the most worthless bunch of, of people in the ministry I could ever imagine. And we find out they're grieved because, well, these guys are preaching Jesus Christ. How many of you, I guess as I look around, you grew up in a Christian home? Raise your hand. You actually grew up in a Christian home. Never take that for granted. Because when you got saved, no doubt there were many who were excited about that. They were excited about that. How many of you here are first-generation Christians? Raise your hand. Do you remember what most likely happened when you got saved? I do. (laughs) People were grieved, remember? It grieved people that you had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It was like a death in the family for some of us. It it was like they're grieved, and and maybe it got ugly, and maybe it got nasty. You weren't popular. Eyes were rolling. People were going, oh, brother, you you may have been the talk of the town if it was a small town. At least your friends heard about it. And uh, maybe there was this lamentation as, as they talked about something that had happened to you in hushed tones with maybe eyes looking down, just kind of almost a a shame there. I find here the word grieved in verse 2, being grieved, grieved spiritually here. I want you to hold your place if you would, but turn back to Matthew chapter 10. When you got saved, there were probably some people who were grieved about it, and that's okay. This is nothing new. It's, it's really an age-old problem. And I stop here to mention it because if you've been recently saved, you might be wondering why folks aren't more happy about that. Well, in Matthew chapter 10, Christ pointed out something very important for us here. Beginning in verse 34, he told his followers, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Now, that's That's probably the opposite of most religiosity today. Ecumenicism says we need to all just come together. But Christ said, no, I didn't come to do that. He said, I came to bring a sword. A sword divides. It doesn't unite. Verse 35, he says, For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, or opposition, against his dad, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes or enemies shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Christ tells us here the gospel will divide, and it always has. And there's a reason those scribes and those Sadducees were grieved. And the disciples grieved, actually, the religious crowd. And there's no grief quite like that. A, a grief over the division that, that religion can, can cause. When I got saved, I went back and I tried to witness to those who were my spiritual leaders before I got saved. And I went to three, we would call them head pastors, if you will. I went to two, and these are all on, on separate occasions. I went to two uh, kind of associates, if you will. I even went to to everybody's boss, the big guy, you know, in our area. And I went and I tried to witness to him. I think uh, when I left, they all sighed. Just, you know, this poor kid has been so brainwashed and he doesn't realize what's happened to him and so on. People are going to get grieved when, when 
people, other people get genuinely saved. It, it, it happens. And uh, that doesn't mean we should stop witnessing. The disciples here didn't. We should never be abrasive in it. We should never be unkind. Uh, we should never be condescending. Uh, we should never be prideful. We're not there to argue. That's not what it's about. Peter and John were not trying to argue their point here. They were genuinely concerned. They genuinely cared. If you and I just want to argue with people and win, forget it. What the lost need to see is that we are concerned and that we, we actually care. I've seen enough in our, our culture, our, our kind of our Christianity, if you will, of, of the spirit of, of in their face and, and bless God and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to out-argue you and that kind of thing. No, that's not why we're trying to, to, to witness to them. We're concerned about them. And so we find out here, if, if we're truly concerned and we truly care, uh, we can make a difference. Well, back in our text here of Acts chapter 4, Notice verse 3, it says, And they laid hands on them, the apostles, and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Now we see persecution here. The missions letter a moment ago just talked about the persecution that, that yet goes on to this day. It's been going on a long time with God's people. If, if you're a child of God, the Bible says, Think it not strange if they persecute you. Um, the Bible reads like who's who when we see God's people being persecuted. We could talk about Elijah being persecuted by, by Jezebel. We could talk about Micaiah being persecuted by, by Ahab and by the false prophets. We could talk about Jeremiah being uh, persecuted by Pasher. We could talk about uh, Saul of Tarsus having Stephen stoned to death. And by the way, I'm sure Saul later on went, what was I thinking? Well, they're not thinking. When they persecute the truth, they really don't know what they're doing. They don't realize it. And Jesus said, if they have persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So think it not strange. In fact, in John chapter 6, Jesus says they will think that they're doing God a service, that they're doing God's work, that they're doing God a favor, actually, when they do it. And down through the dark ages, fifty over 50 million of our our Anabaptist forefathers were put to death by those who thought they were doing God's service. It's always gone on. Now, when, when you persecute Christians, you persecute Jesus Christ. When, when, when Saul of Tarsus was persecuting the Christians of his day, and God finally got his attention, he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? That was Jesus Christ talking. Well, you say, well, Jesus was back up in heaven. Yeah, but when you persecute Christians, you are persecuting Jesus Christ. We, we, we live for Jesus Christ, and, and the world is going to come after us if we do. The Bible says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You say, well, I, I'm not being persecuted that much. It's not something you want to mention. It's not something you certainly want to brag about. Because all that will or decide to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And, and when we're not suffering persecution, it might be an indication that we're living worldly. You know, persecution actually is a badge of honor. It's always gone on here. Now, notice in verse number 4, the Bible tells us, Howbeit, many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. You know what this tells me? Good stuff comes out of persecution. And in fact, we had a missionary who stood here on Sunday, and he talked about the fact that, uh, you know, when you do tribal missions and jungle missions and, and first contacts, 
kind of with people who've, who've never, never heard the gospel and probably never even seen outsiders, quite often he said there's a good chance they're going to put you to death. And he, he mentioned do- dozens of examples that he had read about uh, the martyrdoms that had taken place. And he said, without exception, in every single case, folks have gotten saved afterwards, churches have sprung up. And, and so, you know, it's a, it's a big price to pay, but good stuff always comes out of persecution. And we don't like persecution. We, we, we want it more comfortable. But the bottom line is, if we stay comfortable, there are going to be places, there are going to be uh, towns, villages, tribes that aren't going to get the gospel. You know, he mentioned that on Sunday morning. That, that really convicted me to think of standing before God one day and the great white throne judgment has taken place. And here's a whole tribe that didn't get the gospel because somebody wasn't listening or somebody disobeyed and wasn't willing to take the gospel to those people. You know, we could talk about the RU program. We could talk about a lot of means of outreach. But if somebody doesn't do something, there's going to be some folks standing at the great white throne judgment who did get the gospel, should have gotten the gospel, but didn't because somebody didn't do what they were supposed to do or somebody didn't have the faith uh, to take the steps to do it. You know, he also mentioned something on Sunday, and that is when, when we step out with little faith, God gives us more faith. He said this. He said if he would have known everything he was getting into when he started, he would have probably never done it. But you take that first step, and, and there's enough light for that step, and then you take the next step, and there's enough light for that step, and, and you take the next one, and pretty soon your faith has grown. Little faith means little persecution, which means little trials, which means little joy. And, and, and if you see a Christian who's not having much joy, it's probably a Christian who also is not exhibiting much faith. And so it's so important that we take those steps of faith. But notice in verse 4, it mentions, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed. And the number of the men was about 5,000. Oh, about 5,000. Only about 5,000 got saved. Could you imagine that? How did this happen? What's the secret of this? How did all these folks get saved? Well, it wasn't because there was some guy from Nazareth who, who died and stayed in the grave and is still dead to this day. Now, there are those who are trying to convince you of that. But no, we have a living Savior, we have a living Christ who will work in the hearts of the unsaved and convince them that they need to be saved. You know, as I stand here, there's no way I could convince anyone of their need of salvation. There's no way. Anything I can convince you of, someone else could talk you out of it. You ever realize, okay, we can talk somebody into it. And that's, that's religion out there for the most part, all this work salvation stuff. And you can try and indoctrinate somebody and talk them into something. But that's not supernatural. When somebody genuinely gets saved, it's because there is a living Christ that has convicted them. And it's not my responsibility to convince anybody. It's His responsibility. Only the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ can convince anyone. And, and only when He does will they get genuinely saved. When I was a high school senior, I went to this religious retreat over a three-day weekend. I think it was Saturday, Sunday, Monday, or something like that, if I remember. And it was very unusual, something I've never experienced. But you get there, and, and you divide up into smaller groups, and you name your group. The, the clocks are all covered. You don't know what time it is. You're kept up very late, and you got up very early. And, and the first day is kind of strange, but you got... Uh, young people like yourself up there, and they're talking about some, some really ugly incidents in their lives and in their past. And, and I'm sitting there going, what am I going to say when I get up there? Man, I've had a pretty good childhood, you know? And, uh, and, and so this goes on, and it's kind of uncomfortable. And, and, and uh, anyway, 
the nasty stuff is over the, the first day and everybody's crying and talking and, and then the next day you're, you, they kind of try and puff you up and bring you up and, and then the next day they do something else. And boy, when I came out of there, I was flying high, I'll just be honest. I was, woo, I was on a rocky mountain high spiritually. And I remember an old friend of mine saying, Skevin, you've been brainwashed. And he said, give yourself a couple of weeks and you'll be back to your old self. No, he was right. <laughs> a couple of weeks, I was back to my old self. Anything somebody can just talk you into, somebody else can talk you out of it. But 32 years ago, on a Thursday night in Crooks, Minnesota, God did something in my life. It was a supernatural work of the living Savior. I've never gotten over it. I, I, I can't see myself ever getting over it. When God does it, it's permanent. And, and that preacher who, who gave me the gospel that night, he didn't talk me into anything. It was God there. Only God can do that. Only Christ could convince doubting Thomas. The disciples were saying, he's alive, man, we've seen him. But it wasn't until the living Christ showed up that Thomas said, now I believe. Now I believe. It's not by our might or by our power that people come to Christ. God says, but by my spirit. It's got to be by his spirit. And these 5,000 got saved because God did a work there. An encounter with Jesus Christ will make a difference. And no man can come unto him except the Father draw him. So we see, first of all, the incarceration. Secondly, we see the information. Notice in verse 5, And it came to pass on the morrow that the rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them, Peter and John, in the midst, they asked, by what power, by what name have you done this? Wow. That's an open door. <laughs> you think about it? How did this happen? Talk about an invitation. It's like saying sick them to a, to a pit bull to tell Peter and John, how did this happen? This is a God-spawned opportunity to witness. Do we recognize those? They didn't just happen in the, the, the first century. They happen yet today. God opens doors for us to be able to witness. Back in 1988, there was, a, I think it was a book somebody wrote called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Take Place in 88. And it was a big seller, and, and uh, people were thinking the world was going to end in October. Well, I was working part-time. We had only been here about a year and a half as a church, and I was, I was working as an electrician. And I was looking for open doors to try and witness to the guys that I was working with. And, and so it was noon, we were eating our lunch, and Paul Harvey was on back in those days. So we were listening to Paul Harvey, and he said something about Christ didn't come. You know, it had taken place the day before, and uh, the date, the deadline, and Christ didn't come. And anyway, I forget what his point was, but after it ended, I looked at the guy I was working with, and I said, do you know what the rapture is? He went, no, what was he talking about? That's an open door. That's an open door. God gives us those. We need to just seize them. I was in a business last week, and I was talking to an individual, and, and as it turned out, tragedy had just struck the night before. And that person actually brought up spiritual matters, and I thought, this is one of those. This is an opportunity to talk about Christ. They brought it up even, and so I did. Now, when that happens, and they, those, those, those times will happen, number one, we need to be spiritually ready Obviously, the Bible says, I think it's 1 Peter 3, that we're to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh the reason of the hope that is in us. And I've been caught spiritually cold. I don't know about you. But secondly, when it happens, 
recognize them. God does that. God loves people. God loves the lost. And we, we dare not miss those opportunities. God sees that heart at a time in its life when it's open. And he, so he brings a Christian a, a, across their path. It might be us. We need to understand it doesn't matter who they are. Everybody's a bowl of worms inside. They might ooze confidence. They might even say, I'm an, I'm an atheist. And we go, ooh, you're an atheist, you know. But the Bible says, a fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There's nothing to ooh about if somebody is an atheist and you encounter one. But everyone has insecurities and everyone has uh, questions. And everybody, I think, is, is wondering about what happens when they die. And in the privacy of their room, they look up at the ceiling at night and they wonder about God. The people we you know, work with and we live by and we're related to, they don't dare ask. And, and, and maybe they're even looking for an opportunity. We need to recognize those opportunities. Peter had a golden one. In verse number 7, when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Peter didn't need a big shove right there, did he? (laughs) In verse number (laughs) 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel. He goes on, but notice it tells us he was filled with the Holy Ghost. He spoke boldly. We find examples throughout the book of Acts of boldness. In fact, we're in chapter 4. Look at verse 31. It says, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken. They were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the Word of God with boldness. I find in chapter 9, when when Saul or Paul gets saved, immediately he's out there. I think it's verse 20 of chapter 9. He's preaching with boldness boldness. Let me just read to you here from chapter 14 of Acts. And in verse number 3, the Bible says, long time therefore abode they speaking boldly in the Lord and gave testimony unto the word of his grace. In chapter 19 and in verse number 8, the Bible says, and he went into the synagogue, that is Paul, and spake boldly for the space of three months. You know, the Bible tells us, seeing we have such hope, we have great plainness of speech. If we have this great hope, if we have the truth, it ought to come with this plainness of speech. Not, not that we're cocky, we don't want to be that, or abrasive, or, or, uh, or, or trying to be nasty because it's supposedly cool to be nasty. It's not. That only hardens people. It never does any good. We need to show them we care and we're concerned about them. But we find out here that Peter's boldness he has a boldness, and he, he speaks. And by the way, let me, let me mention this. If you, uh, if you see the, the truth preached from the pulpit, that's one thing, that's public. I have people, I talk to them personally and privately, and they say, you're different than I, I see in the pulpit. Well, yeah. Peter was different publicly than he was one-on-one. When, when I deal with somebody privately, I, I always uh, confront them uh, very gently. And, and, and I find even Christ, he would preach one way publicly. And boy, there were times he would, he would really skin the Pharisees. But if it was, if it was privately, if it, if it was a woman at the well, read carefully how he dealt with her. Or, or the, the rich young ruler. The Bible says, beholding him, he loved him. He dealt with him very gently. And, and I say that only because sometimes you can get confused and, and kind of plow into somebody and go, well, that's the way it ought to be done. Well, no, it's, it's really a matter of being appropriate. When you're witnessing one-on-one, it's, it's one thing. Peter here, he's going to lift up his voice. He's dealing with a hostile crowd. We find out in verse number uh, 
Number eight, Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. That's pretty bold. He reminded them that you crucified him. Now in verse 11, he also says, this, speaking of Christ, is the stone which was set at naught of the builders which has become the head of the corner. He's quoting from Psalm 118 there. And they knew exactly what he's talking about. Well, verse 12 is a very famous verse. Let's look at it together. Speaking of Christ, it says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now, that's not politically correct, obviously, to say Christ is the only way to heaven kind of slights the, uh, the Mormons and the, and the Islamic world and the Buddhists and the Hindus and, and that crowd. And there are even those who will claim to be Christian who will rise up and say, wait, 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 that's, that's too exclusive. But that's the Bible. And not only did Peter say it, but Jesus claimed it. He said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so Christ is the only way to heaven according to the Bible. And uh, while it's not popular, it's biblical, and it's the message this world needs. So we see the incarceration. We see the information. Peter's informing them now. Thirdly, we see the intimidation. In verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. That's a great verse. They had been in the presence of of Jesus. They weren't educated. They were unlearned. Uh, They would be considered ignorant fishermen, but they had been with Christ, and now they're bold. Now, Peter was not known earlier for his boldness. I mean, a little maiden girl got him to back down and deny the Lord three times. But something here had happened, and now he couldn't shut up. His face is shining And uh, they're expecting to bring these bashful little country bunkins in, these men from Galilee, these fishermen, and kind of put them in their place. doesn't happen. doesn't work like that at all because they are convinced now. They've they've seen the resurrected Christ, and nothing is going to shut them up, and they're going to tell others. Well, in verse number 14, also it says, And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, (laughs) they could say nothing against it. I love that. The, the proof is in the pudding. Here's the guy that got saved. It's public. It's common. He's visible. There's no denying it. A miracle has been done. Now, that would have validated what they were talking about there in the first century. I've preached already while we're in First John how not every miracle validates something. There are a lot of false doctrine and a lot of false prophets and a lot of false miracles even taking place out there. And today... The Bible has been complete. The just shall live by faith. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And a wicked and an adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. So if you see some sign, whoa, that must be of God. No, not necessarily. Well, in verse number 15, it says, But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them, 
that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. You know, as I read that, I thought of the hardness of the human heart. It's really an amazing thing. I mean, they knew this guy had been hanging out in the temple, lame for all these years, and now he was healed. And and they saw the truth spreading like wildfire. But there are none so blind as those who will not see. And maybe you've witnessed to some people like that. You know, the Bible, it warns us, be not as the horse or the mule that need a bit in their mouth. And, And they're so stubborn. The Bible speaks of those who pull the shoulder away. That's stubbornness. These guys are just being stubborn. When are they going to break here? Well, in verse number 17, they said, But that is spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them, that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Think that's going to work? (laughs) How'd that thing work, you know? Stop preaching in that name. Well, in verse number 19, But Peter answered, and John answered, and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge you. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We've looked at the incarceration and the information and the intimidation. Finally, let's look at what I call the insubordination. They said, no, we're not going to quit doing it. We are going to continue to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. There's a time for that, actually. Now, we we talked about this in Bible college last night. I was teaching on on something similar. And we were talking about authorities and, and submission to them and so on and so forth. There are actually times like this when it is biblically proper to rebel against an authority. And I I, I made it part of the quiz, didn't I, guys? And actually, they came up with some answers I never even thought of. They do that a lot, by the way. No, just kidding. But but there are places in the Bible where where an authority said, do this or that, and they said, no, or even quietly didn't do it. I think of when uh, Pharaoh ordered the midwives of Israel to put the, the baby boys to death. Remember that? Is that a righteous ordinance? No, that's a wicked one. And so they had every right, those midwives, to defy that. They did it quietly at that time because they'd have gotten it. But the Bible does specifically say that God blessed them for that. So God was on their side. God was on on the the side of the three Hebrew lads when they told Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, we're not going to bow before your statue. Well, that was his command. But they said, we can't do that. And, And Daniel kept praying like he always had, in defiance, not trying to be hard-nosed about it. Even when Samuel anointed King David, the young King David at the time, Saul would have gotten ticked off about that. And Samuel goes, how am I going to do this without Saul killing me? And God said, well, just go and say you're going to have sacrifice in town. God's very practical. That's, That's really the point here. And so the point is, whenever you have an authority telling you to do something that's unscriptural, Well, we always obey the highest authority. That's really the principle. Does it get any higher than God? No. So if somebody tells you to do something contrary to what God says to do, you go with God. They told the apostles here, stop preaching. They weren't trying to be lippy, but you might as well tell the sun not to rise. They said, no, we can't obey you. And when you're saved and you're excited and you're walking with God, you're just going to have to witness. They said, we got to keep witnessing. By the way... If I'm not excited about witnessing or don't have really a desire in my heart to witness or share Christ with people, I'm cold. Bottom line is we've gotten cold or we've gotten too busy. 
Or maybe it's a matter of we don't have it ourselves, and that's why we can't really tell anyone else about it. You know, for, for the first 20 years of my life, I never shared my faith with anybody. Why? Well, I really didn't have anything to share. <laughs> uh, it was so relative, and it was so uh, speculative, and it was such a, a, a free-for-all, and I had no assurance of even what I believed in, so I didn't tell anyone. Boy, after I got saved, I, uh, I got excited about telling others what I had. That's what will happen. That's what will happen. If we're not telling others about Jesus Christ, there's something wrong because God wired us to do that at salvation. And that's, they said we can't help it. In, in verse number 19, they were, or 18, they were told to shut up. In verse 19, Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They were excited. That's what first century Christianity will do. What, what I marvel about here is that they had so little as far as tools go compared to us, and yet they got so much done. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have amplifications, uh, uh, speakers, and, and, and nice posh uh, sanctuaries like this. And, and uh, they didn't have the radio, and they didn't have the printing press, and they didn't have the television. They didn't have so many things that we have today They had so little and they did so much. And we have so much. God help us not to do so little. Now, New Testament Christianity is a a supernatural thing. And let me just say in closing, how do we get this life? How do we get this kind of life? Obviously, as I said earlier, it's not something we can muster up or somebody can convince us to do. Only God can do it. But it comes about when we realize what a sinner we are why Jesus Christ came to this earth to shed blood for our sins, how we cannot work our way to heaven by good deeds or our baptism or church membership or anything else, but by the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And in, in faith, we turn to Christ. In repentance, we turn from sin. We change our mind about the way we've been living, and we give our life, our heart, our all to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you had such a time in your life when you've been born again that way? It's a very exciting adventure that starts there, doesn't end there. And, and as, as far as God's people go, as we look at first century Christianity, God help us to be encouraged to live like this in the 21st century. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.